Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today's episode is about the Enneagram and transformational habits. My guest is Jim Zartman. Jim is a certified Enneagram coach and the co-founder of The Art of Growth, which is a team of coaches and consultants who work with individuals and organizations to help them achieve the transformation they want in themselves their work, and their relationship. I actually connected with Jim through a recommendation from one of my coaching clients. She heard Jim through Laura McCowan's The Luckiest Club and then did an Enneagram one-on-one discovery session with Jim that includes a typing interview. My client told me that her work with Jim and the insights she gained through the Enneagram work was so valuable to her in recovering in life and understanding the lens you experience the world through. Jim's also done Enneagram work with over 50 women who have quit drinking or are thinking about going alcohol-free. So he has insight about how to think about the Enneagram 
through the lens of women who have relied on alcohol as a coping mechanism. So Jim, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's an honor. I love getting to have these kind of conversations because this is the the heart of the real life. Yeah, absolutely. And I also wanted to share that you have a podcast yourself about the Enneagram. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's called The Art of Growth, which is the same name as our our organization that does the training. And that's kind of how we got our foot in this door. We started a podcast specifically of panels because unlike a lot of the other psychometric tools that are out there, the Enneagram is based on self-reporting. So it's not about putting people in a box or like in a formula, but it's people saying what it's like to be them, what it's like to live in their skin of these nine types in the Enneagram. And that's what Enneagram just means. Ennea is Greek for nine and then um, gram just type or kind. and we started these panels and we have several of the same type. Um, and then we've expanded into other topics and stuff like that beyond that. But that's how we got started since the Enneagram is supposed to be based on self-reporting. And even though meme culture has taken over a little bit and been a bit reductionistic, we wanted to actually let people speak for themselves. And when we put out these podcasts, it actually became one of the most popular um, podcasts in that field. And it's a growing field. It just passed Myers-Briggs last year as the most commonly used psychometric tool, not only for personal use, but for business as well. And so we sort of hit that wave uh, right at the right moment. And it became, (laughs) I call it an accidental success um, because we didn't actually intend to do that. We didn't know if anyone would listen to it. And all of a sudden it blew up and then we were being reached out to. And that's sort of been the journey to this becoming... um, the primary focus of our time and our energy and work in the world. Nice. I mean, that's awesome. And I completely want to dive into sort of the basic question of what the Enneagram is, because up until, gosh, I would say two years ago, I had never heard of it. And up until about four months ago, I didn't know much about it, except actually my therapist mentioning it to me and Um, sharing, you know, what she thought my type was, um, which was fascinating. And turns out I did a one-on-one discovery session and typing interview with you and the thought of what she had shared. And I adore my therapist about what type I was turned out not to be true. And what we talked about felt way more accurate about me. But before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you how you got involved with Laura McCowan and the sober or alcohol-free community. Yeah. So as far as Laura goes, that's also one of these kind of random connections in the world. Um, We went to the same author event and... I stood up at this event and I said, you know, it's great to meet you person that we came to see, but I'm really curious to meet other people who would come to see you, like other people who might have had a similar heart or like-minded experience. And so I set up a Facebook page and all these people joined it who were in the room like right away. And for whatever reason, there was a couple people that as soon as I saw them, I was like, I'm supposed to know them. And I didn't know that they happened to live near me, both Laura and our other friend, Jim, who is Jim Trick, who's shown up in a lot of our 
Instagram posts with, you'll see the three of us every now and then. Uh, well, pre-COVID when we were doing the book tour launches and stuff like that. Um, but I literally just hit her up at, uh, on Instagram and said, let's have breakfast. And so my wife and I went and had breakfast with her and she goes, are we, are we becoming friends now? I was like, I think that's what's happening. And we ended up, she's one of my closest friends in Boston now that's several years later. And we've just been able to bounce a lot of ideas off each other processes. And so she invited me to teach at the luckiest club, their master class to do a six week class on the Enneagram with my partner, Joel. And so we, we did that. And so we ended up, you know, offering these discovery sessions and yeah, I think, I don't know how many Joel did. I think I did over 50 just myself. And then he did a ton as well. And so I'm, you know, meeting with all of these people who are coming off of alcohol and it's just been amazing because you, what you find is in order to do this work, people have to be ready to make some kind of a major change in their life. They have to kind of get over the bullshit and it has to be that free zone where you're no longer in denial of your life. And so many people aren't ready for that. Many people are still in denial about their life. They think all their coping mechanisms are working for you. And if they are, fine. You're going to show up in sobriety. You're going to show up the Enneagram. You're going to show up to all the tools you need when you need to do them. Some people aren't ready to go see their therapist, even though they desperately may need one. (laughs) Um, But this is about when people are ready for this work. Um, there's a statement that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I think that's true for the Enneagram for a lot of people. It showed up when they needed it to. And it, it does, I think, provide a lot of the why. Um, and even different parts of the Enneagram, people focus on the manifestation of the type. And we have a big dedication to focusing on the motivation of the type. Um, cause someone will be like, well, you love to help people. You're really focused on help people. You must be a two. I'm like, well, that's a nine in a healthy place. That's an eight when they're trying to empower. That's a six when they're trying to get support. Like, and so that's just a manifestation. It's a way that someone acts and people get typecasted for that. But I want to know what drives someone. So what drives you? And when we had our discovery session, I was like, yes all of these other things are present. You've learned a lot of these adaptations. You've grown in a lot of areas, but the thing driving you was the three. Yeah. Yeah. So we just had our discovery session two days ago or even a day Mm. and a half ago, and it was fascinating. Um, And yes, turns out that I am a three and it was super interesting. I had thought after talking to my therapist a couple of years ago that I was a six. And, you know, when I took an online quiz, it told me other stuff. But when we had our discussion, it was like a light bulb moment. I was like, that is exactly it. And we'll talk about it. But one of the things you asked me, and I was blown away by this, you said, what do you need to do to earn love? And I am an incredibly loving person. I am surrounded by love. But I immediately listed like 15 things that I do to earn love, like, well, I give love out and I'm a good person and I help people and I express love physically and all these things. And you said that is completely a three because 90% or whatever it is, maybe it's not that of people when you ask them, what do you need to do to earn love? Say nothing. I don't need to do anything (laughs) to earn love. And that would never, 
ever, ever have occurred to me. And to this day, I told my husband, I was like, it's not that you don't love me, but it would never occur to me to say, I don't need to do anything to earn love. Can you talk about that just really briefly? Because that was my like, oh my God, people say nothing. How is that? That just (laughs) blew my, I, to this day, don't believe it. Yeah. And a lot of people don't. And also a lot of people don't even think about earning love. The, The combination of the words earning next to the word love would never compete. First, some people think about earning value and some people think about like, well, love is a gift. So that it's that unique combination that, that comes into play there. And just as a side, as you were saying, you know, I took this test and this thing here. Online tests are, they're fine. They're okay. They're a data point, but I would never say, you know, you can take a test and know your type. Um, Anyone can sort of manipulate a test. You can answer in a particular way. You can bend it to the way you want to be appeared. But I come from something called the the narrative tradition of the Enneagram, which is my whole job in that interview when that is to stand as a non-judgmental witness of your story and to ask you questions and see where you take the, the story. I often tell people in this thing, your interpretation of the question is as important as your answer. I want to see where people go. And I think that's what's so great about that process. Because A, you, it's much more accurate. Um, but B, you're sharing your story as opposed to just answering yes or no on like an online quiz. So it's, I think the Enneagram more than any other system is the hardest to get accurate on an online test. We designed one. There's one on our website, theartofgrowth.org. It's better than 95% of the tests that are out there, but it still can't do what I can do when I'm not just listening for your, um, your answer, but I'm listening, I'm looking at your body language. I'm looking, do you have a lot to say about that or a little bit to say about that? Do you, what's your energy behind as you talk about that subject? So there's all of these things. We are incredibly unique you are your own unique expression of your type and there is no one like you, but there is these core drivers that, uh, that are in all of us that we have to kind of look at because they have showed up in our life as a superpower where they've given us every great, wonderful thing in our life. And they are amazing gifts and they've shown up as a shadow where it's sabotaged and gotten in the way of some of the best parts of you. I always tell people like a, a lot of these personalities, psychometric tools, Enneagram, even they focus a little bit too much on the shadow. What do you need to stop being? And we never want you to be less of yourself. You need to be more of yourself with less of your sabotaging patterns. The best of you is permanent. The worst of you is temporary. If you are on your journey, the best of you is permanent. The worst of you is temporary. I love that. I love that. So let's dive in because we've sort of hit around a couple different things, but we haven't sort of explained the nine types or how that would show up. And I know you want to talk about sort of also that there's not just the, the nine different types, but there's sort of the head types the heart types, and the body types. So I'm just going to let you explain it to all of us. 
Yeah, so there are nine types in the Enneagram and um, you can break it out into the nuances of like the 27, you know, subtypes that uh, Beatrice Chestnut, who wrote, I think, the best book on the Enneagram, it's called The Complete Enneagram. And it's um, your type next to your subtype. And that's a whole other dis- uh, discussion. Subtypes are a different discussion, which this thing is endlessly complicated. So I, I can't go into a lot of it, but I would love to hit the head, heart, body. Uh, there are three types in each of the main intelligence centers, as we call them. So there's the body center, there is the heart center, and there is the head center. So the body types are action first, they're action oriented. Uh, like I am what I do, I am defined by my action. The eight having like the most intense forthright energy, the nine having the most um, withdrawn of those energies and the one, the most like direct. So the ones tend to be like sort of the, uh, I have to do the right thing. Very moral. The nine is about, um, harmony and, uh, not rocking the boat and peace. And the eight is very much about intensity. So they are thought of as being in the anger triad because the anger is an activating energy. It's a body energy. The eight expresses it, the nine represses it, the one denies it because it would be a moral problem. So I'll, I won't go into that much detail with each of the triads. So the body triad, then you have the heart triad, the two, the three, and the four. And the two, three, and four, they are much more externally focused. Um, how do you see me? Whereas the body triad is a little more um, self-referencing, the heart triad is a little more others-referencing. I want to know how do you see me and how do I gain love, connection. Um, They often deal with the emotions of sadness and shame uh, more than anger. And they are, they're very good uh, in, in people and in connection. Emotion is their center, their feelings. I am what I feel in the heart center. And emotions are like what I call the color of life. They are, the thing that brings all the color to life. And some types have a harder time accessing their emotions. But um, the two with its focus on wanting to serve and help people, the three with its need to achieve and perform, and the four with its need to be connected but being unique and expressive and artistic. And then you have the head triad, the five, six, and seven. The head triad tends to deal a little bit more with anxiety Um, Their heads tend to do a lot of information, a lot of information gathering, spinning, ideas. Uh, They are exceptional in the world of expansion, and that's what the headspace is for, right? Expanding into new ideas and creation, and um, that can take on different forms. The five is very much about logic and information and resources. Do I have enough? The six is a lot more about security, safety, support, the need for safety, the need for support. So they make things safer in our world. And the seven is all about um, adventure and uh, expanding into new ideas and combining energies and ideas. But the head triad is I am what I think. So you have the body triad, I am what I do. The heart triad, I am what I feel. And the head triad, I am what I think. And these can come with that anger, with that sadness or shame, or with that anxiety. Um, And so much of our work is actually about the integration of the centers. 
So a lot of heart types, uh, for instance, like a four, they might do this thing we call the head heart loop where they have an emotion and they are feelings first, they are feelings led. And for a lot of them, emotions are reality. Then they bounce into their head space to interpret that and try and understand that reality. And they tell themselves sort of a story about those emotions, which creates more emotions. And it causes this head heart loop where it's like emotions and then figuring out the emotion solving, creating stories around it. And they kind of come online to a greater place of health when they include the body center and when they can get into the body and get grounded and their heart is alive and their mind is able to process, but they are grounded in their body. There is this integration of the three centers that happens. And that is one of the biggest steps towards health for people. That was a lot. Wow. It was was a lot, but it was super interesting. And one of the things that I also took away from our discussion was you said, okay, you're a three, but a healthy three, you know, which is focused on sort of external validation. Um, you know, you can describe it better than me, but sort of external reference through emotions and approval mm-hmm. and, and doing the right thing. But a healthy three uses that internal validation and internal Mm, compass as well, which is definitely where I felt that I've grown into since I um, stopped drinking, you know, did all the work that you have to do to not drinking, start trusting myself more and did coaching and therapy work and everything else. Could you make that make more sense about threes? (laughs) Because I know I butchered it. Well, no, you did a great job, I think, with it. Um, This is a something that a lot of the heart triad, um, they're outwardly focused. They want to know how the, how do you see me question? And a lot of times once they realize that, and they've been in that for too long, they're like, well, I don't want to be that. It matters what I think and what I, what I want to do and what matters to me. And I have to ask these questions and it kind of the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. And, um, wisdom is not found in the binary, but in the paradox the external validation that you seek is not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing when it is an over-exaggeration instead of an integration. You want to integrate your internal voice. You want to include the voice of the internal and not be dominated by the voice of the external. And instead of swinging from one extreme to the other, you learn to include the voice that has been a little bit softer spoken. And you bring those voices forward. That wisdom is deeply within you, but it takes some time to tune into that. And the Enneagram is like a tool to get there and I think get there quickly. But even as you said, like you recognized when I described it, that that is the work you had done. And I think that is uh, a incredibly admirable. So people should come to you and learn about this (laughs) and work with you around that. Um, But that is the process for the three is not just the external validation, but the internal as well. Because for people who are highly self-referenced like myself, I don't often consider what anyone else thinks. This is why I put out other podcasts that no one listened to before. (laughs) And then we put this one out and then it became popular. And I'm like, I don't even know how that happened because I was focused on like, what is the right thing for me to do? And so that was a good question, but now I've learned to include the external voice more. And that blows my mind again, just like the (laughs) question of like, what do you do to earn love? Like not really being focused on what other people think or external um, 
points and viewpoints. I'm like, there are people who do that. Like it's so yeah, I never, yeah. And that's the thing is what you start to realize is you have a lens and other people see, don't see the world that way. Yeah. Like if someone asked me the question, what do you do to earn love? I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like the question doesn't even make sense to me. If someone would have asked that, like now I understand the, you know, the heart behind the question, but it never would have registered to me. Yeah. Because like, I, yeah. I just don't, I don't think that way. Well, and that's amazing too, because I do core energy coaching, which um, mm. is sort of the, um, through the coaching school that I went through and what I'm certified in. And it's very similar in terms of you take an online assessment and then we do a 90 minute debrief. And so it'll say, this is your dominant energy, which I think of as the lens through which you view the world, how you emotionally and, and mentally intellectually react to situations. And part of the work is not only saying this is who you are, because most people have three or four dominant levels of energy that they move through um, every hour, every minute, every emotion that you have. Some are draining, some are constructive and proactive and uplifting, but a lot of times you don't even realize that there are other ways to react, to view the world, other lenses and mindsets. And it yeah. is bringing awareness to that and, and realizing that you have a choice, right? It's the difference between saying, I'm an anxious person and I'm experiencing anxiety. And of course you are in this situation, but it's not who you are. Yes, it's not who you are. And we over-identify with our type. We over-identify with our lens. We over-identify with our perspective. And this is what creates, you know, we talk about working with individuals, you know, dealing with themselves and their inner work, which is some of the, what we've been talking about. This is also this moving from self-awareness to social awareness, including, you know, how the lenses through which we all, you know, see each other and we experience the world in, in radically different ways. And, you know, once you wake up to that, you start to have more empathy and compassion for the story of the other. And I think that's what so much of this is about, um, is it's compassion and empathy for yourself and your own story, but also for that of the other. Um, you know, when I talk about, you know, transformational habits, one of the uh, biggest transformational habits we talk about is, uh, is acceptance that acceptance precedes change. You have to accept yourself before you can kind of go through a change. And acceptance is not in the cheap sense of well, everything is fine. It's not acquiescence. It's not allowance that I should just be this way and this is just the way I am and there's nothing I can do about it. That is not acceptance. That is acquiescence. Acceptance precedes change. Acceptance is an acknowledgement of what is being honest about where we are, but it also includes that we can change. But it's just that the path to change is a path of grace. There is no other way to do it. Because acceptance takes you out of the world of trying to force change, which a lot of people do. I just have to will and buck up and make myself change, right? A lot of people who have gone through sobriety know that solution did not work. Laura talks about that in her book. It's kind of like so many times you can do that, but willpower alone and force will not get you there. Neither does repression. That's another strategy. People are like, I have to repress myself. I have to just shove different parts of myself down, but you're holding a balloon underwater. It's not going to work. You cannot repress yourself into genuine transformation. 
You cannot force yourself into genuine transformation. There has to be acceptance, the real kind, the acknowledgement of what is, so there can be a path of grace towards integration, which, like I said before, is not to be less of yourself, but to include these other energies, as you put it. Because when you include the other energies, you become an integrated person instead of an exaggeration of one solution in life. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I also think that, you know, that self-compassion work, that understanding work, that realization of there is a reason why you have reacted this way your whole life is so valuable in order to make some changes, do some work to navigate the world with less judgment for yourself, which that inner critic voice is, is driving so much of us, but also to gain the, the tools to navigate the world with less stress and less resistance. Yes, because it gives you more options because so much of what um, your, your the view of the world, your type, your lens, your energy does if anyone was watching the Zoom, I do this thing on when I'm explaining this over Zoom where I say, you know, your energy is like it can take over. And I just shove my hand forward and I cover the camera on the screen. And, I, and all you can see is like a few lines of my palm. And I say, well, this is what your type does. It just tries to take over and say, this is all the reality is. It narrows your scope. And doing that work, it allows you to pull out. And I think the centerpiece I deeply believe that the centerpiece of all relationship is curiosity. Mm-hmm. Your relationship to yourself is curiosity. When you can take that non judgmental observer voice and you can look at your own story, you can become a student of your own story with genuine curiosity, then you can start to have that compassion and you can actually start to make the change. Like, and, and I think this is applies to all relationships. You think about the beginning of a relationship where two people are first falling in love and they stay up at night and they want to talk and they're asking each other all of these questions. And it's just like talking, talking, talking. Why? Because there's so much curiosity about this other person, right? Um, a curiosity we often don't have for ourselves or the person we disagree with over there that we've relegated over there and you're just over there. And then what happens to couples 10 years in, they're like, well, you know, I kind of know them. I don't, I know what they're going to say. I know what they're going to do. When my wife and I, we do couples coaching with the Enneagram. And when we're sitting down with a couple, we, one of the first things we say is we have good news for you. You will never understand each other (laughs) because when you've lost curiosity. So if I walk into a conversation with my wife And I say, I know exactly how she's going to respond. I know everything she's going to say. I've eliminated her presence. She's not there. Curiosity allows the mechanism (laughs) to keep in motion, connection to stay in motion. And if you are continually curious about your own story and your own reactivity, and you study it with compassion, if you stay... uh, curious about the other and you move from that self just self-awareness into social awareness that is as the centerpiece of relationship keeping that curiosity in motion there isn't much you can't move through we get stuck when we think something is fixed 
And so often when you're working with someone, I'm sure you've seen this and tell me about how you, if you've seen this, one of the things that gets people stuck is they perceive their current reality to be their permanent reality. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I, you know, try to work on with people is um, the idea of when you change, when one person in a relationship changes, the entire relationship changes, right? And that's the idea about being curious about another person, but also being curious about yourself. Because when you understand more, and especially when you remove drinking, everything changes. You don't realize the degree to which drinking and the drinking cycle is coloring your mind, your judgment of yourself, your defensiveness towards others, the way in which you react in the world and adds kind of paranoia and resentment and everything else. So when people come and they say, my husband, my relationship, my kids, my boss, all these things are triggers for me, and they are, but the first step is to remove the alcohol and to give compassion and understanding and do the work on yourself because inevitably things will change and almost always for the better. I mean, regardless of whether you stay in the same job or, or something happens with your marriage, or, there is no way you quitting drinking are going to make things worse. Um, I truly believe that. Well, and I love what you just said too, because you just said, this trigger and I have this trigger over here and you're like, and they are. <laughs> no, for sure. Like, they that's, are. That's that's not... And they are, but you cannot fix, you cannot solve your problem by changing the external world around you. It starts with you. And I, I love that. Cause it's like, yes, you have to acknowledge that all these things are triggers for you. Well, and everything but... might not be right. You may need to draw right. better boundaries or make changes totally. and, and inevitably people do, right? You've been tolerating shit that you should not be tolerating inevitably. Yeah. Totally. There may need to be some cuts for sure. There may be some cuts that are just unhealthy, but sometimes when you get healthier, those things naturally fall away. You know, the, the flies don't come around if there isn't doo-doo on the ground. Like you clean up and it doesn't bring so much of that stuff around. Um, so I just, I liked how you put it because you're like, yeah, all of these things may be triggers, but you start with you. You clean up, some of that stuff doesn't come around. You clean up, you're going to know what you actually need to cut. Um, but you might be someone's toxic person. You might yeah. be someone's difficult person. And if you're doing your work all these other things kind of naturally fall a little bit more into place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I So one question I had, but I really, you know, want to get into the transformational habits. That's what we're talking about. But well, we've already done a couple of them. I know. I know. It. I want you to sort of outline them and, and give the, um, you know, the tool, the takeaway, the things that people listening to this can apply in their lives, or at least yeah. consider and wrap their head around and, get curious about, but you said something, right? You may be someone's toxic person. They may be yours. Are there yeah. certain types that are like oil and water, like are never going to understand each other or require more work? Yeah, there's definitely ones that require more work. Um, I always have this question for couples. They're like, well, I'm a three kind of what, what number should I date? And that's like a cosmopolitan like, quiz, by the way. I know, right? right? <laughs> And I'm like, there is absolutely no answer to that. Um, there, there are combinations that require a little bit more work because they don't understand each other quite as well. But it's not about type. It's about health level. 
So whenever people kind of like look at those kind of divisions, they don't really make sense to me because I'm like, I have really healthy, incredible relationships with people of every type. Um, I think there's certain ones that would definitely be harder for me to be in a close, intimate marriage type of relationship with. (laughs) But um, no, I think we actually need to have every kind of energy in our life because we have something we deeply need to learn from them. So as like, for instance, I'm an eight, I have a seven uh, wing. I'm so I'm very much action oriented. I'm very much in my body. I love that space. My head is always going a million miles an hour. But what my type says is that emotions can get in the way of achieving the goal and vulnerability means weakness. Hmm. And if you're vulnerable, you're going to get trounced. So I need people around me that are in the heart space that show me it's safe, who make space for me in the heart space. Um, I have learned through them that it's actually my vulnerability that gives me authority because the eight can is concerned about not being controlled. And so having power of self and vulnerability feels like you're giving up some of that power. But what I have learned is I will trade authority for power any day. Authority is so much more important. The government had the power in 1968. MLK had the authority. Mm -hmm. That's what actually provides the change. And so to lean into that space, I need to have those heart types around me. And my friends who are deeply heart types and who can get stuck in that head heart loop, they come around me, not when they want um, a lot of... Um, I'm not someone you vent to, let's just put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) But when they want to get back into action, when they want someone to motivate them to to take their next step, they come to me. Mm -hmm. These are why we actually need each other. And we uh, we need to integrate the other energies. Yeah. And you said, you know, in a healthy space. And I noticed that when I was reading about the Enneagram the first time, it was like, an unhealthy six, a healthy six. So can you number six, like how do you, what's the difference between those two? A healthy six and unhealthy six. Oh no, just the concept of any number healthy versus unhealthy or moving to healthy. Um, Yeah. I'll, well, I need an example. So I'll use a six for an example (laughs) because the health and unhealth looks radically different from type to type. Um, you know, for instance, some become outwardly destructive and others become inwardly destructive. Um, a unhealthy six is constantly spinning in the headspace. It's just spin, spin. It's worry. It's constantly um, forecasting and worst case scenario planning. And it's looking for danger under every rock and around every corner. And it sort of has that neurotic. Um, pulsing endless amounts of words to try and dissect what is safe and get to feeling safety and supported. A six who is healthy, who knows that they are deeply okay, are some of the best team builders. They are some of the best partners. They want to enhance and lift up each other. They're often called the loyal skeptic. So they can be loyal in an organization and still call out the flaws. And 
they want to move things towards a more stable and safe place. And they're really good at that. So it is radically different to be around a healthy six than one that is in um, sort of in that more chaotic space. And every single type has a really unique, distinct version of healthy versus unhealthy. And do people move between like when something stressful happens, they move to unhealthy and then they can sort of come back to healthy depending on the situation or the surroundings? Um, I think there's certain areas that is easier to be healthy than others. So it starts with you. Um, I've noticed that for a lot of people, when they're starting to develop healthier patterns, it's easier for them to practice at work than at home. Family is the final frontier, you know. Uh, as Ram Dass says, you know, if you think you're enlightened to go home for the holidays. Oh my God, that's true. Those long established patterns are sometimes the health, the hardest place to access the healthy patterns. Um, but a, a healthy person is one who can be consistent regardless of context and environment. So they can be in almost any environment in any situation and they are going to recognize their energy of their type coming forward and what it wants to do. Um, that's sort of like advanced transformational habits, something we, it takes a few months of coaching you to get to where you can see your energy come up in real time, notice it and make a different decision about the way you're going to go. But those are things that takes a lot of wisdom and, and can take some years to develop. But, Healthy is just, what I call healthy is not a categorical thing, but it's a movement. Um, And it's a movement from life in default versus a life of intention. (laughs) Most people are on default mode. They have an experience, they have a reaction. Um, It's action, reaction. It's stimulus and response. And what this work does is it teaches you to put a space between stimulus and response so that you can have the freedom to actually make a choice instead of automatically reacting. Because, you know, a lot of people, they may be a a type two, for instance, but they're not a type two 24 seven. They're a type two when that energy is pulled out, when some stress comes up. Um, That's when your type comes forward. And then you actually see whether someone's healthy or not. Yeah. (laughs) Someone can, a lot of people I've seen or have just been like, I've done so much work and I'm in such a healthier place. The second they get stressed, it's like, boom, right back down. Oh, yeah. That's not a healthy person. <laughs> That's a person who's fine when everything else is fine. But when your metal is tested, that's when it matters. Um, it matters when you're frustrated and, and someone walks in the door and they challenge you at uh, 10 o'clock at night when you're tired and frustrated and been working all day. That's when you actually see who you are. Yeah. And I'm curious, I know, you know, I think of this often through the context of drinking. This show is is typically mm, for yeah. women who, you know, possibly drink too much, they want to drink less and and feel better and live more. But when, you know, does drinking or numbing or, you know, wanting to escape into alcohol, does that show up differently or the motivations are differently depending on what type you are do you think and it doesn't just yeah. have to be alcohol i mean it's anything that sort of takes you away or you know is the desire in some to suppress and the desire in others to connect and the desire in other mm-hmm. ones to get out of your head and suppress anxiety totally yes yeah. so in talking to a lot of head types 
they drink to quiet the noise, the spinning noise of their mind that seems to always be going, always be saying this, 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 next, next, safe, safe, data, data, whatever it is, it's the spin of the head and the alcohol helps to quiet that noise. And I think it's important that they do some kind of inner work like this because some of them, it's spin, 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 I quit drinking because that's destructive. And any of us who've worked in this arena of seeing people grow and change long enough know that a lot of people give up one addiction for the next. Um, And a lot of times it's a much healthier addiction. Like I used to drink all the time and now I do CrossFit. That's great. But is anything that rules your life isn't a great thing. You, everything should be more integrated. Like I keep coming back to that word. There's an idea of integration and and balance. Um, A lot of people, uh, you know, heart types, for instance, I've talked to several of them, they stopped drinking. And what they realize is the entire time, the real addiction had been relationships. Mm, like codependency yeah. or love addiction or something? Something along those lines. Um, but they were always needing to, um, or some of them, what was amazing to me is they never really wanted to drink, but they merged with the other, the partner who wanted to drink. And their life just becomes about what this person wants. And it's actually the relationship that's causing the drinking, not even so much the drinking that's causing the drinking. We all pull in our coping mechanisms for all different kinds of reasons. And they make sense. There's a need to soothe. There is a need to um, not be caught in some of these worlds. But we we develop healthy patterns um, so that these things don't just take over our lives. I think that's the thing that we have to just kind of keep coming back to um, because otherwise we're just going to get stuck in another thing. And what about the body types? You talked about head and heart. Yeah. So sometimes the body types, it's very different. So some of them it's to sort of quiet the drive um, when they're told there's too much energy uh, it was a couple nines who have this tendency to merge for harmony. Um, I was working with one that it was so it was so hard to get sober because their partner was an alcoholic and had no interest in getting sober, and they just merge with them to keep the peace. And so, if they they never drank on their own, mm. but anytime the other person was there, they drank, and anytime anyone else around them is drinking, they drank. So they're just going along with the flow and not actually asking the question, what do I actually want? Because something that's typical for type nines is they can see from every perspective except their own. So it's in the withdrawing that they can even see themselves in their own perspective. And when it comes to being around even something that's, uh, if they're around healthy people, they function pretty healthy. And when they're around people who are, you know, drinking, for instance, they're most likely tend to merge with that because it takes so much energy to say, I'm going to stand on my own over here. And that's the body type, not the heart type? That's the nine. The nine tends to do this merging. They, um, my wife is a nine and she says, you're a thermostat. You change the temperature. I'm a thermometer. I just read the temperature. Oh, interesting. So it's all about reading the temperature in the room and not wanting to disrupt it. 
And so it takes a lot of work for a nine to do the thing they hate the most, which is to disrupt. Because disruption could cause a lack of connection. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Transformational habits. We've talked about a couple, but yeah. take me through the big ones. Um, so when it comes to transformational habits, some of them are specific to type. And this is something that comes up in in coaching a lot. Um, is what are the unique and special uh, transformational habits that an individual might need based on where they are, what their issues are, what their type is. But there are certain ones that I think matter across the board. I will say that the number one transformational habit of my entire life is very simple. It's two words. Show up. <laughs> um, if you can just consistently show up, you're going to get there. You're going to get to where you need to go. I was, you know, always playing music and stuff as I grew up. And there's a lot of people around who are a lot more talented than me, but I would show up and I always showed up every single day to my, whatever it was, practice, whatever it was. Um, And so I ended up doing a lot more in the field than a lot of people who were more talented than me. If you can consistently show up in any area of your life, then you're going to get there. Like show up to your sobriety every single day and you're going to get sober. Like it seems so simple, but it's the biggest things in life, the things that matter the most, they're easy to understand and difficult to do. It's not like having a better understanding of something really changes anything. You know that if you want to get sober, you show up. You know if you want to be, uh, you know, when I turned 40, I decided this person who has never done um, any kind of like cardio endurance sport ever in my life, very unathletic, um, (laughs) anything with a ball, throwing, catching, (laughs) like I've just, I've always just terrible at sports. Um, But I was like, I need to do something. And so I'm going to do a triathlon. I decided when I turned 40, um, but all it just meant was showing up. Like I'm never going to be that fast, but I can show up and run every day. I'm never going to be um, like, like just cutting through the water, like all these people around me, but I can swim, you know, I'll just show up. And I think one of the biggest things that people underestimate, just fucking show up. So is it because I'm, I'm having this thought that when I was drinking and women who I know are drinking or recovering, like there tends to just be this bubble around you, either because you're a little checked out, obviously it impacts your mind and your clarity and your ability to perceive, but also when you're sort of recovering from drinking or when you're in this Mm -hmm. constant mental space of, damn it, I drank too much. I'm never going to drink again. I'm going to take a break. What the fuck is wrong with me? Okay. I'm going to drink. Like that prevents you from showing up, doesn't it? You've always got this constant running loop or this sort of film around you that separates you, you know, cognitively and sometimes physically from whatever you're doing, whether it's work or being with your kids or being with your spouse or, you know, being at a dinner party and interpreting the conversation. Yeah, but I think a lot of times people tell themselves the story of like, well, I'm just in a loop because I gave up drinking and then I came back in and I gave it up and I came back in. And they, this is again, like the whole permanent reality, uh, current reality is permanent reality, right? So what is it like seven times it takes on average for a woman to leave an abusive man? 
I didn't know um, that, but I'll take you on that. Yeah, it's a, on average, it's about seven times that they leave and come back before they finally leave for good. So many of these things, we have to like, we have to kind of honor our process. And sometimes people aren't ready yet. And they criticize themselves for not being ready yet. But like, when I mean show up is like, okay, if today is day one, today is day one. Show up for today. Like keep trying. Don't. Just, yeah, you just, you show up again. And if you fail a million times, you just keep showing up. And if this is the battle of your life, this is the battle of your life. And like, I I don't know. I'm always frustrated because I want people to get there faster. Yeah. Right. Uh, That's my drive. I want people to get there faster. I want them to get it. I want them to make the changes because I know how much happier they'll be. And if they just listen to me, they'd be so much happier, right? Like there's so many, I think coaches feel that, that feeling of like, you'd be just so much happier. Just listen, just do this. You'll get it. We have to honor the journey of the other. And if you woke up drunk this morning and you're listening to this and you're pissed about the night before, okay, grace. Show up to yourself. This is the transformational habit. Acceptance precedes change. Honor your journey today. Give yourself grace today. Be genuinely curious about what did you need that for last night? Was there a lesson in that to teach you? Was there something that that would help you awaken to? Because if you were in that place, ask yourself genuinely, why did I need that? Instead of criticizing yourself, like, I can't believe I did it again. I'm awful. I crit shame, anxiety, fear. Ask yourself, like, what did I need last night? Why did I need this lesson? Why did I need to experience that? And again, curiosity is the centerpiece of relationship to self and others. And ah, we were recently on on a group coaching call and this woman who had, once again, taken too long to get out of an abusive relationship and she just laid it all out there the abuse that she'd experienced um the violence that she went through her violence in responding to it and all of the other people on the call were like giving her affirmation and nodding and like just saying like you're doing it you showed up today you're amazing she was being really self-critical but they were all affirming her right and then i ask everyone i was like okay Now, can you all give yourselves the same level of affirmation as you just gave her? Wow. And the nodding heads froze. They stopped moving. And everyone's like eyes are shifting around for a second. And I'm just sitting there silently. (laughs) And then everyone went, oh, I get it. Because if I was talking to you and you were sober for the last year and then you woke up drunk this morning, I wouldn't criticize you. And I think a lot of the people who have your best at heart, they wouldn't be criticizing you. They would say, welcome to day one, show up today, have grace for yourself today. Ask yourself why you needed that. Ask yourself the questions that would be as respectful as you can freaking be to yourself. Honor your own journey, honor your own need and honor today. Yeah. And it's that idea. I, I wanted to mention Laura's book in case no one... Um, in case people don't know about it, which I'm sure lots of people do, <laughs> but because, you know, it came out this year in January or February and it's phenomenal. Um, it's called We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life by Laura McCowan. 
And the reason I wanted to mention it is when you talk about showing up and Mm -hmm. honoring yourself for being on day one and for, you know, some people say, keep coming back or it takes, you know, it takes what it takes. But in the beginning of the book, and I know they, they talk about this in the luckiest club, it starts with, you know, it's not your fault. It is your responsibility. It's unfair Mm -hmm. that this is your thing. This is your thing. This is your thing. This will never stop being your thing until you face it. And that when you're saying showing up, yes. that spoke to me. I had to actually grab the book off my bookshelf to read it again because I didn't want to misquote it. But yes, keep showing up. This is your thing until you deal with it. And the only way to deal with it is to not give up and to keep honoring yourself for keeping trying. Yes. In every area of your life. And I can't, I don't, I must be hundreds of discussions I've had with Laura around these kinds of things right now, because as you know, we're always kind of talking about this kind of thing. Cause like, why did, uh, there was something that happened. I don't even remember what it is. And I, I guess I, I wouldn't share it if I did, but I asked her about why did you need this right now? Like something, you know, bad and hard had just happened where someone had treated her in a way that was not, um, honoring. And, and I was like, what do you need in this right now? Like, why is this happening for you right now? Mm. Um, and we ask that question to each other a lot when each other is (laughs) in a weird spot, like, why, why do you need this right now for this step in your growth? Um, and if you reframe everything like that, I don't think it's like an overly positive spin, but it's an honoring of what is. Because once again, what I said at the beginning, the other op- the other options are force, shame, repression, and they don't work. But honoring today, um, one of the most important things, like showing up today, like this is your thing today. Whatever that thing is, it may have even been, um, there's the consistent thing, which is an ongoing thing, which she's referring to there with drinking. But there are other things that yes. you discover. There's, there's the thing behind the thing. Underneath. There's always yes. stuff underneath. Yes. Like you you went to this coping mechanism for a reason. It yeah. there is something that you are attempting to cope with, whatever it is. And one of my favorite um, questions about shifting people, you talked about reframing, but shifting it from sort of the the space of powerlessness and sometimes self-pity and and not and being draining and not being able to move forward. I love the question instead of asking yourself, why is this happening to me? Ask yourself, how is this happening for me? Because even yes. difficult things, it's not it's not saying what's happening isn't shitty, but you are yeah. not powerless. You are never powerless in it. And you have agency and everything is happening for you, even if it's making you stronger or giving you additional resolve or spurring change that needs to happen. Yeah. A friend of mine who's a psychologist, his field of study is he was studying PTSD um, and he wanted to know why some people had post-traumatic stress and some people had post-traumatic growth. And he was fascinated by this, this field of study in post-traumatic growth because he's like, what is it about people that actually are able to accomplish something they never would have been able to had they not experienced all of this trauma? 
um, what gift has come to the world because of what they have been through hell and they've come out the other side. At this point in my life, I don't trust anyone that isn't colossally effed up in some way. (laughs) I don't trust them. Like none of us have that story. It's what is our unique brand of effed up and how can we actually use that as um, manure (laughs) fertilizer for good fruit to come forward? Oh my God, that cracked me up because I remember when I was starting coaching, going to school, starting coaching business, and my husband like really tentatively was like, I don't know how to ask you this in a way that won't offend you. But <laughs> like he was truly like, fuck. You know, and when you were saying that, I don't trust anyone who isn't fucked up, like he said, can you be a coach? If you, you know, uh, had all this shit happen and had anxiety and are on anti-anxiety meds and, you know, kind of have a lot of shit going on that you're still working through. And I was like, I was so like, absolutely. I wouldn't trust anyone to help me through drinking and stopping drinking and dealing with the shit who hasn't been through it. Like they just don't get it. Oh, good to know. Apparently that's not a reason, you know, like he was just like, you know, where they're like, can you do this? Like, who are you to help people or talk to people? And that was the one thing when you say, I don't trust anyone who's not fucked up. I had no hesitation to be like, oh, fuck. Yeah. I can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause that's like, this is the, takes us back to the beginning. We're talking about why I like working with people in the the sober world is because they've lost the illusion. They're no longer living unto the illusion of life. They've had to face reality. Um, another friend said he went to an AA meeting the first time he goes, and he was not someone who ever had an issue with alcohol. He just walked in and went, this is a bullshit free zone. Oh my God. That is exactly what all of this is supposed to be. That is what we all need. And we talk about transformational habits, I say one of the most important transformational habits is community. There's All right, sanity. So we've got curiosity. We've got showing up and community. Yes. Um, there's, I have like 10, we're not going to get through these, okay. but, but like, um, but community is, there is sanity in community. If you have healthy people around you, um, who can help guide your life, who can ask you good questions, who are compassionate observers of your story. If you include those voices in your life, you're going to treat yourself better. You're going to respond to things that come up better and, and you will attract more of that to yourself. Uh, one of the people I was coaching and I almost didn't say this cause it, it was so hard, but he had, had just come through a, um, a really hard relational thing where she did not treat him well, broke, broke away and kind of, they had had a new kid and she sort of walked out of the picture. And then he's like, I'm, you know, now in this situation, what do I do? And we were talking about how we tend to accept and attract the community, the love that we think we deserve. Mm. That um, when you look at people's friends, you can tell a lot about what they think of themselves. When a person, uh, one friend who would introduce me to a new uh, gentleman lover, and I would be like, this person is so far 
beneath her. What What's going on? I'm like, oh, she doesn't see herself yet. Mm. The next person, um, a little better, but this is not you. And then now she's with someone where I'm just like, yes, you finally get it. You are finally drawing towards yourself the kind of person that you are. And yeah. which means I can tell that you're actually honoring yourself more. And this is a hard shift for a lot of people to make, to actually move away from relationships that are not healthy and move more and more towards ones that are on uh, when we were doing the training on transformational habits for Laura's class. We don't normally talk about kind of moving away from relationships because there's sort of this thing in our culture now, which is like, I just got to cut all the toxic people out of my life. And I'm like, well, in some of these situations, like maybe it's you, like I said, you clean you up, the rest of the street gets cleaned up too. Um, but there are sometimes relationships you have to let go of. Yeah. And or you people who aren't healthy, right? People who are people toxic. Who I mean, one of my yes. favorite things, you know, and that's hard if it's a family member, if it's someone you're in a relationship with. I mean, I think someone who is a family member is actually the hardest. Yes. Um, but, but you do become like, I mean, I, it's the same, but I believe it like the five people you spend the most time with. And sure. when you pe- see or surround yourself with people who lift you up, who love you, who bring out the best in you because they see the best in you, who inspire you for more, that is incredible. So there is a need, you know, you don't need to walk away from, everyone in your life who is dragging you down. But if they are not healthy, if they're not doing the work, if they're trapped in their own negative thought patterns, boundaries are so helpful because you don't need to let them sort of pierce your heart um, or drag you down with their, you know, being toxic people or being um, undermining or trying to bring you down to their level or cut you down. And I mean, I think that's, a real point of growth, do the work yourself. But when you believe you deserve better, you will, you will naturally spend more time with people who honor that and less time with people who try to drag you lower. Yeah. And when you honor yourself, you stop enabling the misbehavior of others and the the low side of others. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times there is this, this culture of walking away from toxic relationships and I, I sort of thought about it that way for a while, but the way I was sharing it with that group is um, uh, I, I shared something that I wrote about this, which is more along the lines of bless them and go on. Mm. And it's like this. It says, when the way becomes more memory than vision and the story that led you here cannot show you how to go on, When you reach the wilderness where no maps have been drawn and terror and excitement flow through you like twin rivers, may you respond with courage to the pull to go on. When those on either side of you are frozen and look longingly toward the familiar at their backs, the most natural sense on the surface of your skin when you stand on the edge of the unfamiliar is the longing for what is known, even if it was never enough. We cannot blame or shame them, for many have traveled far enough, 
And in truth, they carried you to where they themselves could not go. In kindness, turn and thank them. Bless them with all your love. Bless them again and go on. I think that is the perfect place to end this. I loved that. Is there anything you want to leave us with in addition to that? Because that was beautiful. I think if I left anyone with one transformational habit to consider, it would be to breathe. (laughs) I often say that I am two deep breaths away from sanity at any given point in time. Kind of whatever is facing you, whatever is in front of you right now, it is you are two deep breaths away from sanity. And if you pause and take those breaths, then you can make a different decision. You can make a choice where you may have been on default before. And actually, if I, and if I left you with anything, I would, as far as I would want you to know and reinforce this message that you have to honor your journey. I put it this way. I'll read one more thing as I leave you. And that is um, this idea that people want to come to this healthier space, this sort of more enlightened field. Um, But to that, I want to leave you with this. Enlightenment is beautiful, but shouldn't be reserved for meditating monks on mountaintops. It shouldn't only be for those who have already left earth to join God in the clouds away from the wondrous mundane. If the sacred isn't stationed in simple tasks and the divine not discovered in the daily moments, that of nursing mothers and tired teachers, of researchers, writers, and plumbers. If it can't be found in the teaching of a child or the feeding of a friend in the world of dishes and sneezes, of trash and traffic, then I am not interested. I am only interested in a dirty enlightenment. All right. Well, how can people get in touch with you? I am positive that people are going to come away from this interview and be super interested in knowing what their type is and healthy habits and, and coaching with you and all that. Yeah. So the best way to reach out to us is at theartofgrowth.org. If you're just curious to take an online test, like I said, you can take ours there. You can also reach out to me to set up a discovery session and see um, what your type is like um, or what type is yours, I should say. And that would include a, a typing interview Um, an overview of your type, where it's shown up in your story, and some coaching next steps. And then that experience is often where people actually decide if they want to continue to work with us. Um, But you can reach out to me, jim at theartofgrowth.org, email. And um, I I try to get back to everyone as as quickly as I can. So um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Casey, for having me on. It's been great to get to know you a little bit. And um, hopefully people will continue to lean into working with you around this stuff too, because it is uh, so helpful. I mean, one of the, one of the most transformational things you can do is I say that seek the sages, seek the sages around you, seek people who have walked the path and, and join them because most of us try to do things alone that we are unprepared to do. So go side someone and, and journey with them and you'll go so much further. That's wonderful. One of my favorite quotes, just to jump off that same line, and and I used it for myself often, 
um, in leaving corporate America, in starting my business, in quitting drinking was stop asking people who aren't going where you're headed for directions. Because so many of us mm-hmm. look to others to yeah. tell us what we should be doing. And if we don't want what they have, inevitably, they're going to lead us down the wrong path. Yeah. Never take advice from someone you wouldn't trade places with. Yes. Okay. That's a quicker way to say exactly what I meant to say. It's perfect. All right. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Absolutely. I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.